Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. If you think 2020 has been a strange year, it's time you heard about 1811-1812 right here in the U.S. We've been through tsunamis and tornadoes together here at 1001 Heroes Podcast, so I thought it was the right time to talk about the most powerful and destructive series of earthquakes and aftershocks to ever hit the U.S., the New Madrid, Missouri earthquakes of 1811. This story has a lot of value, I believe, to anyone who is interested in U.S. history and geology, because it incorporates a wide selection of persons and events from the early 19th century in America, a time when Missouri was considered the frontier, and the Mississippi River was just beginning to see steamboat traffic. This story, and the stories of the people and the wide region affected by these massive quakes, provides a fascinating window to a rarely talked about period of time in America. 1811 was a year of firsts in the U.S. In January of that year, the largest slave rebellion in the U.S. took place in New Orleans. For most of the year, the Great Comet of 1811 was discovered and was visible to the naked eye. It became known as Tecumseh's Comet for the rebellious Indian chief whose name Tecumseh meant shooting star, or more loosely translated, he who walks across the sky. It had last been seen 3,065 years ago during the reign of Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II. Tecumseh's equally famous brother, the Prophet, had predicted a solar eclipse in 1806, and when the governor of Indiana challenged him to repeat the feat in 1811, the Prophet did so. Actually, the Prophet had hosted a team of astronomers and had a good memory. Governor Harrison wasn't aware of that. The prophet predicted that the black sun appearing in 1811 meant war was coming, and that self-fulfilling prophecy came true as well in the form of Tecumseh's war. On November 7, 1811, William Henry Harrison won a battle with the Shawnee at Tippecanoe, and that became his campaign slogan for his run for the presidency later in 1840. It was Tippecanoe and Tyler too. The British were putting their support behind Tecumseh's confederacy in an effort to secure the Great Lakes region, and the war lasted until 1813, after the British lost at New Orleans, and Tecumseh lost a series of battles in the north. And headlines were made when the first steamboat to travel on the mighty Mississippi River, the New Orleans, built at a cost of $38,000, launched out of Pittsburgh in late September of 1811. It was a high-tech beast for its time, and inventors Fulton, Livingston, and Nicholas J. Roosevelt, the great-granduncle of Theodore Roosevelt, had all contributed to its design. It could travel 8 to 10 miles an hour, which few believed it would be able to do, and it was about to change the transportation industry and turn the river towns, many of them, into bustling ports and cities. The captains of the various barges, flatboats, and keelboats on the river all agreed that a ship of her size could never travel the Ohio or the Mississippi upstream. No way, they said. Impossible. To prove them wrong, Roosevelt told the captain to put in at Cincinnati and, for a price, escort some non-believers and some news reporters upstream for a ways. Roosevelt was on board with his pregnant wife Lydia and their two-year-old daughter. Roosevelt had made significant contributions to the design of the paddle wheel, and he was officially on board to report on the success of the steamship. They had no idea, obviously, that as they traveled south on the big river, they would be swept up in the worst series of earthquakes that America had ever experienced, or has experienced to this day. When they reached Louisville, the voyage was delayed while Lydia gave birth to a son, 
Then soon after they had to wait as the falls of Ohio were deemed too shallow to navigate. It would take weeks for the river to rise. When conditions were right, they navigated southward to where present-day Owensboro, Kentucky is, and there they spotted a natural outcropping of coal, just a ticket for them, and stopped to grab a sizable load of fuel. They had had to travel light over the falls, so there was plenty of room for the coal. On the night of December 15th, they anchored in the lee of an island, and were surprised that night when Tiger, their big Newfoundland dog, refused to sleep out on the deck, which he had done every other night of the cruise, and demanded to sleep, or try to sleep, in their stateroom that night. His was a fitful sleep, and nobody could figure out why. But animals have a way of sensing things that humans can't, and Tiger knew something was up. Thanks to delays, they were still 200 miles upstream from the epicenter of the quake. During the early morning hours, the passengers felt a sudden movement, as if the ship had broken anchor. Then it stopped. The cable shook and trembled, and some woke and complained of nausea. The shocks, which felt like the ship was grounding, were felt through the deck, one after another. But when they hoisted anchor in the morning, the normal shaking and rumbling of the ship took over, and they headed south, forgetting all about the disturbance of the night before. South of the New Orleans, and just south of the epicenter at New Madrid, a man named William Pierce was traveling in a flat-bottomed boat that evening before the first shock. He later described the evening as unpleasant, dark and cloudy, and the weather unusually thick and hazy. Suddenly the world erupted underneath him and around him. In a letter to the New York Evening Post, he wrote, Everywhere nature itself seemed tottering on the verge of dissolution. As Pierce and his traveling companions watched, the earth opened up before them, sending a volcanic discharge of combustible matter skyward. The earth, river, etc., torn with furious convulsions, opened in huge trenches. There, through a thousand vents, sulfurous streams gushed from its very bowels, leaving vast and almost unfathomable caverns, wrote Pierce. The travelers found no haven in the river. The bed of the river, he wrote, was excessively agitated, whilst the water assumed a turbid and boiling appearance. Never was a scene more replete with terrific threatenings of death. Based on eyewitness accounts and geological evidence, seismologists estimate the groundbreaking earthquake to have been an 8.0 on today's Richter scale. The shock waves were felt from the east coast to the Rocky Mountains and from southern Canada to northern Mexico. Church bells rang in Boston with the shock. Shock waves were to be felt as the following quakes hit in New York City, Montreal, and Washington, D.C. Between December 16, 1811, and March of 1812, some 2,000 aftershocks ensued in the Midwest and 6,000 to 10,000 earthquakes occurred in the boot hill of Missouri where New Madrid is located near the junction of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. Three of the New Madrid earthquakes are on the list of America's top 20 quakes, and they own the number one spot for earthquakes in the continental U.S., that being outside of Alaska. For your curiosity, number one was a 9.2 March 28, 1964, Prince William Sound, Alaska. And the first and worst in the continental U.S. was number nine, which occurred February 7, 1812, New Madrid, Missouri. Number 10, by the way, was in 1857 in Fort Tejon, California. December 16, 1811, was the first of the New Madrid, Missouri quakes. That one ranked number 17 at 7.7. And ranking number 20 was the January 23rd quake in New Madrid, Missouri. So three in the top 20. Number one, 
in the continental U.S. One regional historian described the seismic event as the most violent earthquake that ever happened within the recorded history of humans on the North American continent. Although many people think of California's San Andreas Fault, which birthed the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, as the most dangerous in North America, the quakes from 1811 to 1812 that erupted from the New Madrid seismic zone were the most destructive. The fault line runs some 150 miles from Mark Tree, Arkansas, to Cairo, Illinois, passing through southeast Missouri. The series of disruptions that history has singularly dubbed the New Madrid earthquake left their marks on more than two dozen states and territories. Several entire towns were destroyed. Some had disappeared before the earth calmed several months after the first quake hit in 1811. Rivers changed course. The Mississippi ran backwards for several hours. The few survivors from the area were homeless, their communities scattered. The people living in the area filled churches, seeking reprieve from God's wreckage of the earth, and doing a lot of praying. Especially heart-rending was a situation that the New Orleans steamboat we just discussed earlier faced when they reached New Madrid. Still traveling south on the morning of the 16th, they stopped at Henderson, Kentucky to allow the Roosevelts a chance to visit their friend, John James Audubon. They were greeted with a strange sight. Every chimney in Henderson had toppled. Leaving Henderson after a brief respite, the New Orleans passed through Chickasaw Indian Territory. There, the land was suddenly flooding without rain. Geysers were shooting up like broken water mains. When the huge steamship came into view, with its engine loudly beating, and spewing fresh sparks and smoke from its smokestack, the Indians were sure that it was this that had been causing all the recent misery, and some braves tried to chase it down, but they couldn't keep up with it for long. Along the riverbank, people, settlers, were calling for help to get out of there, believing that the world, at least their part of the world, was coming to an end. The steamboat couldn't take them on. When the boat reached New Madrid, the sight was horrendous. The river was full of uprooted trees, there were huge holes where parts of the town had been just hours before. Terror-stricken people were begging to come on board, while others, due to the scary appearance of the steamer, were afraid to come on board. They were screaming that they had no homes left. All was ruined. The boat couldn't handle the kind of weight that all these people would present. There was no way to feed and clothe all these refugees. And the boat wasn't sure what they were headed into. The people were probably safer where they were. The New Orleans kept steaming southward. We'll return to our story right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our story. As hard as it was to do, the New Orleans couldn't offer help. They had to keep steaming southward. Back in New Madrid, the settlers, many of them, had nothing to go back to. In the middle of the night of December 15th, Residents had awoken to thunderous roars that reverberated like cannon fire. Houses began to shudder and move. Furniture slid across floors. Brick chimneys collapsed, and heavy logs screeched as they skidded against one another. Everyone in the community rushed out into the winter night to be met with the overpowering stench of sulfur and the freezing cold. In the bitter cold, the settlers remained outdoors throughout the night as the tremblers renewed every few minutes. The earth's emanations of smoke, water, dirt, and steam amid an overpowering sulfurous stench blocked the view of the moon and the stars as a cacophony of terrified animal sounds and the roar of the quake engulfed the stunned community, standing and shivering in near-total darkness. 
Resident schoolteacher Eliza Bryant painted a vivid image of people running aimlessly in the dark, while around them the earth was horribly torn to pieces. Recalled another settler, The night was made loud with the cries of fowls and animals, the cracking of the trees, and the surging torrent of the Mississippi. Around 7 a.m. December 16th, another quake struck, every bit as powerful as the first. By this time, the air had filled with the fog and the vapors spewed from within the earth. As the settlers watched, the ground bucked and rolled, opening fissures that spit rocks and sand high into the air. An inescapable vision of hell had descended upon New Madrid, and there was no place to hide. Four hours later, a third quake rolled through, the strongest yet. The nucleus of this megaquake emanated from the town of Little Prairie, now called Carruthersville, south of New Madrid. That night, Little Prairie residents abandoned their homes. Unaware that New Madrid had been devastated by the same natural disaster, those refugees set out on foot for the 30-odd-mile journey to New Madrid. The clearly marked trail was no more, beset with crevices and fissures, felled trees, and newly made quicksand bogs with muddy water that went from shallow to deep without warning. The settlers dodged panicked snakes and other creatures desperately seeking safety, as were the settlers, from the unpredictable toil. Pervading everything was the sickening pall of sulfur as the earth opened up its bowels. It was a day-long journey. When the travelers from Little Prairie arrived on Christmas Eve at what was left of the once-busy market town that had been New Madrid, they saw the same devastation they had left behind. None of New Madrid's residents remained. Most were camped in the woods a couple of miles outside the town. All the refugees could see was the skewed and twisted ruins of their homes, barns, and shops. Left behind, vacant. New Madrid may have been decimated, but it offered more than Little Prairie, whose refugees had no town to return to. The second quake had virtually leveled Little Prairie when it ripped off the entire riverbank, dropping it into the foaming, turbulent river. With nothing to hold back the water, the town and the surrounding countryside for miles flooded to the depth of three to four feet. It was gone, underwater. One eyewitness account, that of Colonel John Shaw, who was visiting people in Little Prairie, reads, While lodging about 30 miles north of New Madrid on the 16th of December, 1811, at about 2 o'clock, there occurred a heavy shock of an earthquake. The house wherein I was stopping was partly made of wood and partly of brick, the brick portion all fell, but I and all the family all fortunately escaped harm. At the still greater shock, about 6 a.m. in the morning on February 7, 1812, I was in New Madrid, when nearly 2,000 people of all ages fled in terror from their fallen dwellings in that place and in the surrounding country, and directed their course north about 30 miles to the Twapperty Hill on the western bank of the Mississippi, and about 7 miles back in from the river. This was the first high ground above New Madrid, and here the fugitives formed an encampment. It was proposed that all should kneel and engage in supplicating God's mercy, and all simultaneously, Catholics and Protestants, knelt and offered silent prayer to their Creator. About twelve miles back, toward New Madrid, a young woman about seventeen years of age named Betsy Masters had been left by her parents and family, her leg having been broken above the knee by one of the falling weight poles of the roof of their cabin. "'and though I was a total stranger, "'I was the only person who would consent to return "'and see whether she still survived. "'Receiving a description of the locality of the place, "'I started and found the poor girl upon a bed "'where she had been left with some water and cornbread within her reach. "'I cooked up some food for her, 
and made her as comfortable as circumstances would allow, and returned the same day to the grand encampment, Miss Masters eventually recovered. In abandoning their homes in this emergency, the people only stopped long enough to get their teams. It was a matter of doubt among them whether water or fire would burst out among them and cover all the country. The timberland around New Madrid sunk five or six feet so that the lakes and lagoons, which seemed to have their beds pushed up, discharged their waters over the sunken lands. Through the fissures caused by the earthquake was forced up vast quantities of a hard, jet-black substance, which appeared very smooth as though worn by friction. It seemed a very different substance from either anthracite or bituminous coal. It all was a most heart-rending scene, and had the effect to constrain the most wicked and profane earnestly to plead to God for mercy. On February 7th, the most powerful of the New Madrid earthquakes hit, and that was when the Mississippi began to run backwards. The force of the land upheaval 15 miles south of New Madrid created Real Foot Lake, drowned the inhabitants of an Indian village, devastated thousands of acres of virgin timber, and created two temporary waterfalls on the Mississippi. Fissures, or deep crevices where the ground was cracking and separating, began opening up, running from north to south, and sometimes measuring up to five miles in length, were swallowing people. Sand boils, in other words, beaches where there had been no beaches, were created, one reaching a mile and a half in length. Seismic tar balls were created, some reaching the size of golf balls, and were scattered in sand boils and fissures. Lights flashed up from the ground. These were caused by quartz crystals being squeezed. Sulfur smog and sounds of heavy thunder accompanied the sounds of trees colliding with each other and then cracking and falling. Snakes were forced out of hibernation, as well as other animals. Ducks and geese became disoriented, and some were falling near people, at least providing a meal for those who could eat through all this. It was absolutely crazy. Those who survived coming face to face with a disaster of biblical proportions sought answers. Not surprisingly, the people who had witnessed the quakes firsthand, as well as countless thousands who had merely heard or read the accounts, saw in them the sign of divine intervention, an indication of God's dissatisfaction with humankind. As the hymn, A Call to the People of Louisiana, penned months after the quakes, proclaimed, More than six months have passed and gone, and still the earth keeps shaking. The Christians go with bowed-down heads, while sinners' hearts are aching. The great event I cannot tell, nor what the Lord is doing, but one thing I am well assured, the scriptures are fulfilling. From time to time over the past two centuries, there have been prophecies of another cataclysm from the fault line that runs deep beneath our feet. Notably, on September 26, 1990, the earth shook in the tiny city of New Madrid, caused by a relatively small earthquake. Since then, since 1990, the fault line has remained still. The underlying cause of the earthquakes is not well understood, but modern faulting seems to be related to an ancient geologic feature buried under the Mississippi River alluvial plain known as the Real Foot Rift. And this is where it gets fun for you young geologists out there. The New Madrid Seismic Zone, the NMSZ, is made up of reactivated faults that formed when what is now North America began to split or rift apart during the breakup of the supercontinental Rodinia in the Neoproterozoic era, which was about 750 million years ago. Maybe you knew this, but I didn't. But Rodinia is the name given to the supercontinent that was just one big super island on Earth, containing all the continents that we know today. 
It was just one big super landmass. This supercontinent, theorized and declared as such by Valentine and Moores in 1970, was later named Rodinia by McMenamin and McMenamin in 1990. If you look at your globe, it's easy to see how all the continents could have been connected at one time. In the New Madrid seismic zone, faults were created along the rift and igneous rocks were formed from magma that was being pushed towards the surface. The resulting rift system failed, but has remained as an olicogen, a scar or zone of weakness, deep underground. More than 4,000 earthquakes have been reported in the New Madrid seismic zone since 1974. In recent decades, minor earthquakes have continued. The epicenters of over 4,000 earthquakes can be identified from seismic measurements taken since 1974. They originate from the seismic activity of the real foot rift. That zone is called the Madrid Seismic Zone. New forecasts estimate a 7 to 10% chance in the next 50 years of a repeat of a major earthquake like those that occurred in 1811-1812, which likely had magnitudes between 7.6 and 8.0. A 25 to 40% chance exists in a 50-year time span of a magnitude of a 6.0 or greater earthquake. The question all you Missourians have to ask is, are you feeling lucky? Could this garden of bleeding all repeat? In a report filed in November 2008, the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency warned that a serious earthquake in the New Madrid seismic zone could result in the highest economic losses due to a natural disaster in the United States, further predicting widespread and catastrophic damage across Alabama, Arkansas, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, and particularly Tennessee where a 7.7 magnitude quake or greater would cause damage to tens of thousands of structure affecting water distribution, transportation systems, and other vital infrastructure. New Madrid's population today, which hovers around 3,000, tends to look at the geological possibilities philosophically. One observer sums up the town's combination of caution and inevitability. Its citizens keep one eye on the Mississippi and one eye on the hills. New Madrid folk singer Lou Hobbs put it another way in his signature song, Living on the New Madrid Fault Line. The good Lord, he put us all here, and only he's going to take us away. Living on the New Madrid Fault Line, you got to live it day by day. And that kind of says it all. Thanks for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. We appreciate you joining us on this adventure, and I call it an adventure. We get to cover a lot of different stories here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and I can't tell you how much I enjoy being able to bring them to you every week. I try to keep it even between the four categories. Still haven't decided what we're going to do next Sunday, but it might be a piece I've been working on called The Makings of a Revolution. We love reviews, especially nice reviews, and I have a few new ones for you today. The first one, the best podcast ever, five stars. Super good. I like how you can get lost in these stories and forget the stressful world we're in right now. P.S. I'm 11 and I cannot wait for Sunday, even though there is school the next day. Down from Cool Dude, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, one of the best history podcasts. Covers a lot of different topics in history. Easy to follow and listen to. Down from Clayton, 2815, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, great again. It's, it's good to hear another good old story told without foul language and twisted revisionist history. Down from Wolfie Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. 
"'and this one compelling, five stars, "'just the kind of content I wanted. "'Down from RN Needs Laughs, Apple Podcast, U.S. "'And this one, great show. Five stars, well-researched episodes "'and presented in a straightforward, factual way. "'Excellent podcast. "'Thank you so much for sending us the reviews. "'I know it takes some time to do it, "'but it's greatly, greatly appreciated. "'I know it sends new listeners our way. "'Also, please share with friends and associates. "'We appreciate that, too, "'and that's a great way for us to grow.' We have a lot going on at some of our newer podcasts. For instance, at 1001 Greatest Love Stories, this week we'll have Chapter 7 of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's a story I'm enjoying immensely, and many people call it the great American novel. We've got The Return of Tarzan at 1001 Stories for the Road. That's been doing extremely well. And for you Sherlock Holmes fans, we have 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories. If you haven't downloaded that podcast yet, and you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, you'll want to get over there and listen to some of those stories. They're great. And if you haven't tried out 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, we keep that one alive with classic ghost stories from some of the great writers of the Victorian times. That's about it for now. Thanks for joining us. And make sure you catch our latest short story at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Until next week at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.